Well, if you've been following the news at all lately, you uh, have no doubt read about the, the horrific execution in Afghanistan. The woman accused of, of adultery. She was shot multiple times by a man while others stood around cheering what was going on. It's been interesting to read the responses to that. People on both sides of the issue, some, of course, in support of this expression of Sharia law, others who are adamantly opposed. But I think some of the most intriguing responses comes in the little commentary section, if you're reading it online, where readers can log on and they can register a response. Here's the one that really grabbed me. Referring to the executioners, this reader wrote, and I quote, those blankety-blank, bloodthirsty barbarians, we should just drop a nuclear bomb on all of them. Exactly. Who's the barbarian? I, I was so struck with that. Let me see. The reasoning goes something like this. They are barbarians. Therefore, we who are not by barbarians by comparison, well, we should do something very civilized like dropping a nuclear bomb to rid the world of those barbarians. Do you have a problem with that? You know, I think, truth be told... Most of us have this sense of, oh, when we read something like that, we think it's horrible. And yet, I would suggest to you this morning that behind, behind that statement lies another problem that we must face as the people of God as we continue in this adventure that we are calling being friends of sinners, as Jesus was a friend of sinners. You remember we, we identified the fact that he was called a friend of sinners and it was not a compliment, and yet it was, as we look at his life, an affirmation of the calling of his father upon his life. Jesus said that he did nothing. He said nothing without receiving what he said and he did from his father. Last week we considered the problem of, of taking pride in our own righteousness. That is indeed a barrier to being an effective friend of sinners. When we begin to think that we are something other than what we really are, and that is we are sinners who have come to know the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We read in Luke 19, the story of the Pharisee, remember he was standing at the temple, and I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people, these adulterers and these thieves, and even like this tax collector, but, but I am who I am, I tithe, I fast, and he was recounting his good deeds before God. Jesus, you remember, turned the tables on contemporary thought for that day when he said that no, it was the humble, repentant tax collector who, who stood there and beat on his chest and cried out to God, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. 
He was the one who at the end of the day, Jesus said, was justified, not the Pharisee. And the irony, of course, that, that we learned is that, that we, we know this to be true, but sometimes we probably struggle to live it out, that we have no righteousness of our own. The scripture is clear that our righteousness is as filthy rags before the holiness of God. Period. That's it. And any righteousness that we have is Christ's righteousness that is given to us. Paul told the Corinthian believers that God made Jesus who who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, so that we might have Christ's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be fully devoted followers of Jesus and we talk often that that is our mission statement, Jesus was someone who was a friend of sinners. And as devoted followers of Jesus, we must work intentionally at becoming friends of sinners and we ought to make that our our goal as followers of Jesus. Because as that name suggests, those who are followers of Jesus are at least in theory following Jesus, striving to live like Him, striving to reflect His values, striving to speak like Him. And we need to recognize the barriers that keep us from becoming effective friends of sinners. And that first barrier that we have seen is Quite honestly, the stupidity and the fallacy of thinking that we have anything in us that impresses God. Because the only thing in us that impresses God is His Spirit, who lives in us as a result of being granted the righteousness of Christ, His Son. God is impressed with His own sinlessness and His own holiness not our own. Remember our simple definition of sinner last week for the purpose of this series? Anyone who is not a follower of Jesus, anyone in in the words of Romans 8 that we've spent several weeks together in, anyone who is still under the condemnation of God because they have not been set free from the sin nature, through the gracious gift of God's Son, they have not come to a place where they surrender control of their life and they give it to God, seeking His forgiveness for their rebellion. And what happens? They become His children, adopted as His children, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, no longer living under condemnation because they've placed their faith and their confidence control of their lives into God's hands as a result of what he has done for them through Christ. And so our definition of sinner is anyone who is not a follower of Jesus, assuming that followers of Jesus have have done that. And so this morning, I want us to recognize another barrier to being effective friends of sinners. And that is the tendency to, to categorize certain people according to their sin. I can say it that way. Making them worse than others because they live like this or they live like that. 
And if we were to be honest, we would all, I'm pretty sure, admit to the fact that there are some people who are not followers of Jesus who are easier to be around than other people. What is it that makes the difference? Well, I would say that theologically, it is is the effects of sin upon their lives over a prolonged period of time, perhaps. What what makes people different? Uh, we, We must not ever forget that everyone that we meet is fallen including the person that we meet in the mirror. And when we categorize people according to their sin, thinking in terms of some sins being worse than others, the the tracking of our thinking kind of runs along these lines. Certain people or certain groups, because of what they stand for, or because of the certain sins that they commit, the way that they live, Those persons are farther down the path of wretchedness and therefore they are less deserving of God's grace of salvation than other sinners. You've never thought that, right? We wouldn't say that because theologically we know better. We're more theologically astute than that. And yet, in the reality of it, when push comes to shove, where in your book... Do child molesters fall? Where in your book do human traffickers fall? Where in your book do members of Al-Qaeda fall? Those, I will admit, are three that are really low on my list. Those are three groups that in my idea of sinfulness and wretchedness have walked that path so far that they are just not deserving of God's grace. This kind of thinking is evidenced in statements like, you ever say this or hear this? Whoa, it would take such a miracle for that person to be saved. It's one of the dumbest things we could ever say. Or, I just don't think there is any hope for so-and-so. Or in the extreme, we ought to just drop a bomb on the whole bunch. Really? Do Do we honestly believe that there are difficulties, degrees of difficulty for God? That he finds some life changes are more challenging than others? Certainly they're more challenging than our own, right? Because we are not as sinful. Thank you. (laughs) And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, that kind of thinking leads to what I think is a devaluation of human life. Some people are more worthy of salvation than others, and so whether we intend to or not, and, and of course I hope not, we will end up writing certain people off. There's, there's just no salvation for them, no hope of salvation for them. And yet the one 
who is the ultimate friend of sinners, the one who we are committed to following after, he never wrote anyone off. And he told his disciples to never write anyone off. When he said these words, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, these are probably familiar for many of us. Sermon on the Mount, the Magna Carta, I think, of what is uh, for followers of Jesus. He said, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you understand, it will be measured to you. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. You know, folks misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. He's he's not talking about discernment. Jesus calls his followers to be discerning. Be as wise as servants. Be as innocent or gentle as doves. He's not suggesting for a minute that as his followers, we don't discern in terms of the differences that we have with people in relationship with them. We, we need to know where people are at. We need to understand where people are, are coming from. We need to know who they are. We need to know what they stand for, what motivates them, what's important to them, their value system. You know, and, and quite honestly, in, in the language again of Romans 8, as we, as we use our definition of, of sinners, we need to know ultimately whether a person is a child of God or an enemy of God. That's the language that Paul used in Romans chapter 1. It's those two categories. Everybody in the world falls into one of those two categories. Child of God or enemy of God. Jesus is using the word judgment in Matthew chapter 7 in the same sense that a judge uses that word or lives out that word, issuing a final verdict. It's to sentence someone, to pronounce judgment upon them and assign them a penalty according to their sin. Last I checked, that's not our job. Although sometimes I really want it to be. Let me take care of this one, Lord Jesus. I've got a really good idea how to deal with it. Jesus is saying very clearly, that activity is never the responsibility, nor is it the prerogative of those who are his followers. Again, lay the teachings of Romans chapter 8 alongside the words of Jesus. Those who have been freed from condemnation through no merit of their own are not in a position to pronounce condemnation over those who've not yet been set free. Does that make sense? God's grace in our lives never allows us to write someone off in the sense of determining whether they have hope of salvation or not, whether they are worthy of salvation or not, whether they are deserving or not. Grace does not allow write-off. So, 
This morning we want to stand and read from John's Gospel, chapter 8. I want to invite you to stand with me. And uh, let's read these words of Jesus from this story. Folks have scattered, going in different directions, John tells us, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Let's read together. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. My brothers and my sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Quite a different ending to that adultery story, isn't it, than the one we have been reading about lately. Last week, I said to you that that the ultimate need of all people, and we know this, is to, to know and to experience the love of God made available to them through the forgiveness and the grace that comes as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus. I think that one of the keys to moving people in that direction, and we talked about this last week briefly, is for them to, to actually experience God's people liking them. Far too often, I, I fear that, that those who identify themselves as the people of God, well, they're, they're known by those who are not, they're known for what they stand against. They, they are known for what they disapprove of. After all, we are the standards of holiness for the country, so look to us and we will tell you what is right. Facetious, forgive me. But read the news. Read the headlines. Way too often, we are identified as those people that are against that. Now, I'm certainly not opposed to being against sin. That's a fairly biblical concept. What happens is, when we lose sight of the people who are involved in that, and they become synonymous with that sin, that's where we've crossed the line. And that's where I think we have entered into the realm that Jesus tells us not to enter into. It is judgment. It is assigning them to the realm of perish, hopeless, 
not worthy. We can quickly, and I think rather easily, if we're not cautious, objectify those who are part of something that we disapprove of, forgetting that they are people created in the image of God. Doesn't that just burn you sometimes to think about the folks who are created in the image of God? Really? Is sin that bad? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's that damaging. Some of you know the name Matt Chandler. He's pastor of the Village Church, Texas area. Writes about a time that he had a couple of his friends, uh, he, he and some friends, excuse me, invited a young woman. Her name was Kim to a, a, to a gospel concert. And Matt was hopeful that Kim would come to Christ that evening. However, he said what occurred was a train wreck. In retrospect, Matt was grateful for the experience because it changed the way he saw how to proclaim holiness in the light of the cross of Jesus. He writes this story. He says, The preacher took the stage and disaster ensued. He gave a lot of statistics about STDs. There was a lot of, you don't want this and you don't want that. And his big illustration was to take out a single red rose He smelled the rose dramatically. He caressed its petals, talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been fresh cut that day. And then he threw the rose out into the crowd and he encouraged everyone to pass it around. And as he neared the end of his message, he asked for the rose back. By now it was broken and it was drooping and and it it was ugly. The petals were falling off. And he held up this now big, ugly rose for all to see. And his finish line to his message was, now who in the world would want this? His word and his tone, Chandler says, were merciless. His essential message, which was supposed to represent Jesus' message to a world of sinners, was this, hey, don't be a dirty rose. Matt didn't hear from his friend Kim for several weeks until one day her mother called him to say that she'd been in an auto accident. So Matt immediately went to visit her. In the middle of our conversation. Seemingly out of nowhere, she asked me, do you think I'm a dirty rose? Chandler says, my heart just sank inside of me. And I began to explain to her the whole story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's behind that story is that Jesus wants the rose. It's Jesus' desire and purpose to save and redeem and to restore the dirty rose. I think if we allow ourselves to slip into the realm of judge, it is easy to forget that God sent His Son to the cross to redeem those whom we are judging. So I want, you to, uh, I want you to turn to someone nearby for just a minute or two this morning. And I want you to imagine, try, that you are the woman who has been dragged before Jesus. What are some of the emotions that you are feeling as you listen to what's going on? Try to put yourself in her shoes or... Maybe her bare feet. And what are some of the feelings that you have about this situation that you're in?
Go ahead. Ask your neighbor what, what that might be. All right. What do you think? I think I may just throw this microphone away, Andy. <laughs> That's what I think. No. It's not Andy's fault. He tries to get me to use this thing correctly. What do you think? What are some of the feelings? There you are. Caught in the act. Dragged out in the middle of this crowd. Scared. I can imagine. Especially when the conversation turns to stoning. Yeah. What else? Shame. Yeah. Yeah. What else might you feel? Matt? Okay. Good. You're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Good. What else? Donna? Interesting that you should mention that. Isn't that fascinating? Tim? Many do. Yes, Tim. Yeah. There you go. Set up. Yes. It is possible that this woman was set up. It's possible that this whole thing is a lie. That she wasn't caught in the act. Mary? Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Whether, whether the, the charges are true or whether I've been set up, uh, I'm in a world of hurt right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Any other observations? Yeah, Wilfred. In Guatemala, lynchings are quite popular. Lynchings. Guilty or not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So many... Co- Diane, go ahead. You were going to add something too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes. Absolutely. Great observation. Second-class citizen, all the way. You know, we've, we've talked about life under the, the, the Roman culture, and, and, and the Jews were not exempt from the influence of that. Women were property. Do with them what you want. Is they're really not all that important. That's why the gospel is so transforming. It smashes into the, to the perverted and sick cultures of fallen humanity and, and, and lifts up and redeems and gives Gives hope. So many unanswered questions in this story. Wouldn't you love to know what Jesus wrote on the ground? All kinds of speculation on that one. Some say it was probably the sins of her accusers. Some feel like Jesus, knowing what was going on, was just giving them a little time to squirm and he was just doodling. What were they saying when they continued to question him and badger him? Did, did, did the woman speak up at all? And of course, the great question that, that we've raised is whether or not she really was caught in the act of adultery. Maybe, maybe not. And as Donna has pointed out, it's really suspicious. You know, adultery takes two. Where's the guy? And Levitical law required, <laughs> Levitical law required that both be brought before the people. Both be stoned. Well, maybe he ran away. Maybe he got away. Maybe he didn't have to get away. Maybe he was part of the plot, the setup. Maybe so. We don't really know. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that just jumps out at me this week as I'm, as I'm going over again and again this familiar story. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly what was going on. And regardless of the details that may have made this justifiable action or at least justifiable accusation or not by the Pharisees, Jesus knew their hearts. John says that this was a trap that they might be able to accuse him. Because he was shaking the religious system. Remember we said last week that, that sometimes the Pharisees do indeed get a bad rap. Because for many of them, their, their passion was to, to protect the holiness of God as it was represented in the law. That's not a bad goal, other than the fact that, as we said, that we really can't protect the holiness of God. He does a great job of that. But, but so often what happens is what we see here that, that persons are, are trampled over in the process of rushing to protect the system and the values that we believe are most important. And it seems that Jesus was not about to sacrifice this woman for the sake of their supposed standards or their understanding of the standards. One commentator says this. He says in Jesus' final words when he says, neither, I, neither do I condemn you or neither do I find you guilty. Uh, it, it's, it's the same concept, the same root as, as the judgment. Neither do I write you off. We could put it that way. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. The implication, this commentator says, is clearly that the woman had been sinning. 
Who hasn't? We all do. However, as on other occasions, such as when his teaching touched on divorce or paying Roman taxes, Jesus had in this instance evaded the hostile question which had been put to him about observing the Mosaic law. And he, he changed the agenda. He uh, one-upped his opponents. And as for this unfortunate woman before him, he was not so much concerned about her allegedly criminal action in infringing the law and legally meriting death, which was the ploy of his enemies. This commentator goes on to say, as he was more concerned about the sinfulness of her behavior, and if it truly was an adulterous situation, the fact that she devalued her marriage and her husband, behavior that Jesus was now forgiving by allowing her to go and giving her that injunction, leave your life of sin. So let me ask you another question. I think, I think here's where it comes to for us in, in understanding how we get at this, this barrier of categorizing people and judging people based on their sin. This barrier that keeps us from being effective friends of sinners and keeps sinners from really feeling as if we like them and are interested at all in their lives. The question is this, is there anyone in this scenario that's been laid out for us by John, is there anyone standing there that knows this woman better than Jesus does? No. No. Of course not. What have we learned in the past from Colossians chapter 1 about Jesus the Creator? You remember what Paul says, all things were created by him and for him. This woman standing in front of Jesus had been created by him and was created for him. Takes us back to that, that phrase that we have often talked about. We were created to live in a relationship with God. We were created to experience love and security and passion and energy and life like we can't even imagine because we live in a fallen world. Jesus stood there looking at this woman, guilty or not, and he saw, I'm speculating, but I think it's reasonable, he saw her entire life before him. He saw the moment she was conceived. He saw her childhood. He saw her growing up. He saw her foolish decisions. He saw her good decisions. Jesus knew this woman better than she knew herself. And what he saw standing before him was a creature that had been made by him for him, deeply broken and marred by sin. What do you think? Is that a motivator for us? As followers of Jesus, we say we're followers of Jesus. The grace of God in our lives, which we have clearly determined we did not deserve, nor did we earn, the grace of God never, ever, ever gives us the ability or the excuse or the reason to write someone. No one is out of the reach of God's grace. 
No one deserves His love and His grace. It is free. It is a gift. That is why it is grace. And that is why we stand where we do. My brothers and sisters, praise team, come on up and, and prepare to lead us as we respond. I, I want to leave you with this thought this morning. And, and that is that every person that crosses our path, you know, is created in the image of God. We, we know that. that that's, maybe, that's maybe the easier statement of these two statements. The second one is that every person who is created in the image of God is terribly marred and broken by sin. Do people have responsibility for their own sin? Of course they do. God holds them responsible for their sin of rebellion before him. I think it's so important for us to remember that, yes, people are responsible for their own sin, and yet God calls us to be vessels of His grace and His hope and His forgiveness in the lives of those that He puts around us. That means that the the worst person in your life, the person who you have assigned to that category many times, is broken and marred by sin and in desperate need of of redemption. Here stood this woman before Jesus. And what he saw was someone who had been created for relationship with him, who was a victim of the sin that has caused the fall of humanity, standing there desperately in need of redemption so that she might be restored and live into the relationship for which they were created. That, to me, is the greatest challenge in this whole thing. You know, I can can understand that people are created in the image of God. I understand that that they're marred and broken by sin, and I want them to be fixed, but I want them to be fixed because they make my life miserable. God... Fix those people, save those people, and implied in that is, and get them out of my hair so that they're nicer and I can deal with them. God, restore those people so that they can know a relationship of love and intimacy that they were created for that I am experiencing as your follower, which was undeserved, unmerited that you gave to me. That's what I want for them. May God give us the grace to see people as broken and marred, pain in the neck that they are, always with the hope of being restored and beautiful and awesome in what he intended for them. Amen.